Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cammie. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is, but I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. My guest for this episode is the sparkly Kimberly Spencer. She's a certified high-performance coach. She's a writer. She's a total health junkie, wife, mother, and like me, she's a dyed-in-the-wool optimist. Join us as our conversation meanders from the concepts of blame and apathy to the experience of being an Enneagram 8, curiosity as a superpower, and the idea of crowning yourself. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Ready to dive deep? Today I want to talk about what we mentioned in our very first conversation of blame and apathy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that you paired those two together because I see them as very different, but I'm sure that you're going to tell me that they're interconnected. Well, blame is a biological response. So our like that that's an initial immediate response, but our, our conditioning to hold on to blame, that's where we can become the victims. And then if we stay in the victim space too long, then, then we acquiesce to apathy. Oh, wow. I want to describe the codependency triangle to you. All right. We have the hero corner for the one who rescues people. We have the victim corner for the one who needs rescuing. And we have the perpetrator corner, and this is for the villain. It's also known as the asshole corner. Growing up in kind of a codependent household, my mom was either forcing me to be the hero or the victim, the victim along with her, or if I wouldn't help, then obviously I was the asshole. And I learned uh, probably either late teens or early 20s that the asshole corner is the only one with an exit door. And that I have to be willing for someone else to believe that I'm the asshole to exit mm -hmm. that uh, scenario altogether, even though I know it's not true. Yeah, interesting. I saw uh, there was a, a Forbes article written that shared that the it's called the drama triangle of the victim, villain, asshole. But if you flip it, the the victim can become the creator. The hero can become the coach. And the, the asshole can become the challenger, the disruptor, the one who literally disrupts and changes the systems for generations. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Ooh, okay. I'm going to, I want to write this down. So the victim becomes a creator. The hero becomes the coach and the asshole becomes the disruptor. Interesting. And have you experienced that in your life? Mm-hmm. In every single one of those areas. Can you give me an example? I love that. So when I was bulimic, I was a victim of myself. And that was an experience where I blamed my dad. It was his fault that I was this way. I learned it from him. I learned like these addictive patterns. So that's how I processed my stress. And it wasn't until I realized that my dad was never the one shoving my finger down my throat. That was me. I had to take ownership of my choice that I then was able to step in and create a body that I loved, but I had to take ownership first. 
Same with the hero role. I used to be the one to swoop in to save my dad from his addictions, um, swoop in to rescue him. And it wasn't until I staged his intervention that I then said that more was a coaching space where I said, this is where my responsibility ends and this is where yours is to go from here. I've given you all the resources, tools, and information that you can add that can support you to get successfully sober. I'm done. And I I separated myself from my family for about six months. And he successfully got sober off of alcohol for the rest of his life. Um and so, but it it came for me no longer playing into that enable of like, let me rescue you. Let me jump in. Let me save you. Let me like try to like go through and hide, get all your pills and like find the bottles and things like that. Because that's the, the hero is really the enabler. Yeah. the hero, And then as a yeah. fellow Enneagram eight, I was just, you know, I was born to be the challenger. <laughs> <laughs> Same girl, same. Oh, yeah. That's the that's the default for us, definitely. Yeah, that was like I. But I also know that I was born to disrupt and break the family cycle and the generational cycle of trauma and abuse in my family. Outstanding, and there there comes some pride with that. Some some well deserved pride, and it takes heaps of courage because not not everyone wants to stand in that space. A lot of people just like want to deflect the blame of, you know, oh, it's, you know, their fault or it's, you know, so-and-so's responsibility. And that's, that's where I'm like, here's the, the hero and the challenger can meet and can be very, very good friends when they decide to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find that sometimes being the challenger means that we're alone. Yeah. And we stand alone for a, a bit. Before we, you know, attain a following or, or find mm -hmm. people who get us. But being the challenger is challenging. <laughs> it's not, it's not an easy role for everyone to embrace. Mm -hmm. And nor do people embrace it immediately. Yeah. You can be perceived as the asshole. an asshole or a <laughs> jerk or, um, you know, they hate you for it. But then they also realize, oh, She's also the one who's doing things. She's also the one who's moving mountains. Maybe if I thought a little bit more, like maybe if I took the step to leap. So have you encountered a lot of other Enneagram 8s who are either too stuck in that challenger role or are um, uh, reluctant to be vulnerable? The reluctance of, of vulnerability like one of my one of my clients recently shared, he said, until I met you, I didn't I've, I never cried. Oh, Ouch. like, and it's been four years. He's <laughs> like cried more now than ever before in my life. And I said, well, think of your emotions and vulnerability kind of like a Jenga set. And if you're repressing, suppressing and trying to escape through various means, the feelings that your feelings, which are big feelings. And I found that Enneagram eights just we the because our primary negative emotion is driving is anger it's a big emotion and some people are scared of it. And sometimes we're taught to be scared of it ourselves yeah. and, or that it's, so, it's inappropriate to express any kind of anger or, mm -hmm. you know, Oh, that, that was me. I was, I was the one who, uh, as a child, I would 
even my my childhood friends remember this like i would like blow up and be very dramatic about it i would leap out my bedroom window at which was on the first floor so it was not like (laughs) (laughs) but it was a very dramatic exit and i would go outside to just like be amongst the stars and in nature and then my mom would have to corral me back inside and then we she would force me to sit in a prayer circle to pray about my anger issues with my friend which was so embarrassing um and i know that they were doing it because they were doing the best that they could with the resources they had available um my mom is a classic enneagram 2 my dad was an enneagram 3 so their primary emo- driving emotion was shame so <laughs> shame that anger out of her and, yeah, and that that works never <laughs> never, never never so it took me a long time to realize and, and embrace my own anger my own vulnerability and to allow myself to get vulnerable but when you're and that's where bulimia was basically is that was my that was my respite because I had no idea how to deal with anger. I would just repress, suppress, and then eventually it would explode. Um, and I did that for 10 years until I was 20, 21, 22. Um, wow. And that that moment around 19 from 19 to 22 was really the most transformative time was when I was really challenging. I knew I wanted to live. I knew bulimia was a slow form of suicide. I knew that I wanted to um, figure this out. I knew I could. I just didn't know how. And so I was constantly testing and growing and being curious and following my curiosity. And I didn't have any, I fortunately, even though my parents had their their issues, they always were supportive of me in my career endeavors and in my pursuits of passion because they just knew that whatever I would want to pursue, I would I would pursue it until the nth degree. And so in that space, they were always incredibly supportive of any challenge career wise that I took up. <laughs> and so so they that was a that was a huge attribute for them. But that experience of going through my own healing and recovery, it required me to remove myself from the victim side of being the the victim blaming my my dad um it required me to look at how i was being a villain in my own life and Ooh. it yeah that's a big made one. me yeah and it made me had to have to take a very clear hard look at how i was trying to have food be my savior and it it wasn't and once i looked at how i could take ownership of my food how i kind of could kind of coach myself around that I knew that it was a, a mindset piece. And within two years, I'd recovered with no psychological or medical intervention. Wow. Um, and I remember the moment that I knew I'd recovered because I, ironically and paradoxically, most people think like, oh, you did beauty pageants and that probably triggered your environment. And I said, no, 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 no. Beauty pageants, I started doing them when I was 15. And that was where I found my people. Like prior to that, I thought I'm the Enneagram eight, the the disruptor, the one who has like big ass dreams. And like, I'm going to go for them with all my might. I did not care about dating. I did not care about like going to parties and getting drunk. Like I wanted to change the world from a very early age. And so that energy of disruption, like finally, when I found beauty pageants, I was like, wait, these are girls that love you know, to look good. They love to feel good. They love sparkles and crowns and like rocking a a good, like hardcore stiletto. (laughs) And they want to change the world and they have philanthropic endeavors and they are get good grades. I'm like, these are my people. That's (laughs) awesome. It was when I was in the Miss California uh, 
pageant back in 2010 that I was walking on the stage in my bikini and it was after I'd um I'd spent the past two years teaching and training in Pilates and I felt so good in my body and I'd had the past two years were such a uh, a learning lesson of discovery and recovery and I was walking on stage and I realized in front of like 4,000 people that I no longer needed the validation of those like eight judges buried in the shadows ahead of me to give me some sort of crown. I was going to crown myself like that. I, I knew I won and I did not need that valid. And I was like this alone, this moment, that's all I need. Like that's fabulous. And so from then on, I had always crowned myself with my body and own that that the vulnerability that it took for me to recover and to be fully seen and to ask for the support that I needed over those course those few years to start learning to trust my intuition to guide me into those spaces and so that that piece of vulnerability is essential for uncovery and removal from that drama triangle oh my gosh yes and how and before you said you blamed your dad for your bulimia where did that blame finger point at during those two years where you were when you were healing oh it was back at myself <laughs> i mean i i think particularly with high achievers we're especially for those that we want to be so um, most of my clients they they grew up in a very victim-based household and so they swung that pendulum the other way to where they take everybody's ownership including their own and the thing I tell all of my clients is like, you can only take a hundred percent. You can only take a hundred percent. You can't take, you can't even take 1% of somebody else's ownership. Yeah. And we are all responsible for our own choices that we make for the emotions that come out. Just because someone else is blaming us doesn't mean that we have to accept it. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, stories is a story. I believe it's, um, from the Buddha who had these two travelers come travel all this way. And this one, one man was very, very angry with the Buddha and his teachings. And he comes up to the Buddha and he, he says, you know, like, I'm very angry with you. And the Buddha says, I do not receive your gift. <laughs> like that's, that's on you. That's mm -hmm. you gotta own, you gotta own your anger. And the fact that you care, like you tried to give me this gift that you've now traveled for miles and miles and miles with. At some point you have to recognize that some gar some garbage is just garbage and you don't need to pick it up. Yeah. I have a similar story. There's a guy in a taxi cab and the garbage truck that was driving in front of him loses its load and there's garbage all over the street. And the passenger in the cab is going, oh, my, I'm going to be late. It's so horrible. How come you're not screaming at that other driver? And he said, just because someone dumped the garbage doesn't mean it's my garbage. Nah. You don't have to pick it up and roll in it just because somebody says, you know, you're a terrible person or you're late or you're awful or you're not worthy. It's garbage. You don't have to pick it up and roll in it and claim it as your own. You can say, oh, look, there's garbage or look, yeah. there's anger or yeah. there's blame. Um, I heard a, a great quote on Instagram and I can't remember, I think it might have been Penelope Cruz. I, I may be wrong, but she said, if I were to scream an insult at you in Spanish, it would be meaningless to you. But if I screamed an insult to you in your language, you would assign meaning to it. And then you would, you might be angry at me for insulting you. It's on you to prescribe meaning to whatever comes your way. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, 
Brilliant. So as you were in that in that two years of healing process and as you were blaming yourself, how did you put that blame stick down and stop beating yourself with it? Where where and how did that transition happen to become a, a healthier version of you? So that transition really happened um, through curiosity and through being in an environment where I had started teaching Pilates back when I was uh, 19 to support my career uh, in Hollywood back then as a screenwriter. And that was my bridge job. I wanted a job that I could do that allowed me to set my own hours. But after I had started doing Pilates on my own, I felt so good for the first time in my body. I was like this, I'm going to follow this. Like I, I feel so good in this. Now knowing what I know about neurochemistry and, and the brain, like I was activating my parasympathetic nervous system, which had been on fight or flight for the past 18 years. So <laughs> I was learning how to train and regulate my nervous system. No wonder I felt good. Um, didn't know that back then, just knew that it felt good. And so I said, I, I have to teach this. And I went in, got certified. And within a year, I'd become the highest paid, youngest freelancer instructor in, at the studio that I was teaching at. And I think it was because I, I led with authenticity. I led with the fact that I had never, you know, personally loved my body um, until I found Pilates and until I found a process and a system that that worked. And I said, I, I can definitely say that this is a system that I know works because it worked for me. And so I was my greatest testimonial. Mm -hmm. And I let I let that be enough, which is a huge lesson in business. Because mm, Sometimes yeah. you are your especially for service based entrepreneurs for creatives. Sometimes you are your best testimonial of your own transformation. And that experience of being in that environment of teaching 10 hours a day, 10 different people's a day, being exposed to 10 different belief systems every day, it changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you think the world works because our brains are wired to survive. And so my brain was thinking I had to live in this reactionary world, be the victim, be the villain, yeah. you know, swoop in to save the day. <laughs> and I was seeing all of these different belief systems come through my studio door. And through seeing that, I was like, huh, I got very curious. I said, I wonder I wonder how she got that marriage that's so amazing that she's been, you know, happy in for the past 30 years. And they are like truly deeply happy because you can feel it. The difference between like, we're so happy and, and then <laughs> like the real happiness. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, like I would see other people and other belief systems where I'm like, huh, that person is the most stressed out person I've ever met in my entire life. I wonder what that what's driving that. And I remember that there was there were there were a few clients that made some very indelible impressions early on um, who taught me great things. And one was this housewife who was the most stressed out person I've ever seen in my entire life and to this day and constantly like out of breath, constantly like her stomach had been it literally inflated with like it was hard like a rock from just constantly storing stress oh, and so she was tight. Her body was always tight. Um, and our emotions represent themselves in, in our body and they manifest. Yes. And then countered, and she was a housewife. She was completely taken care of by her ex-husband. Um, her two kids were grown in high school with their own cars. And she, she lived in a very wealthy, affluent neighborhood. And she was always stressed. And it was about these little things like, what are the PTA napkins going to be? Oh, the poor thing. That's, 
That's really interesting. Like I personally wouldn't choose to stress out about napkins, but that's, that's really interesting. And then I had another client who was a lawyer at one of the top law firms in the world. And she would come in at like nine o'clock at night, pregnant with two kids already, um, just waddling, always with a smile, always happy to see me, like ready to go, never complained. And I was like, I had to ask, I was like, have you always been this way? Yeah. And so, and, and she shared her story and her story was not too dissimilar from mine. And I was like, that's very interesting. Like, and she had something that I wanted. I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I wanted to always have a family, to have kids, to also have a thriving career, to have the Louboutins. I've wanted that. And I'm okay with claiming that. And, and so I saw that and I, and I saw the difference and I saw, wow, one of the big stressors in life is that so many people confuse busyness with being purposeful. And that was a big lesson. So I allowed my clients to teach me and I allowed myself to get curious and to question and to look at these different belief systems and examine my own and realize, you know, when I, especially through my recovery period of like, okay, I see that I'm making these choices. And so I started to examine my triggers. I started to examine these habitual emotional responses that I would have to then go binge and purge. And I started looking at, oh, well, what what really caused that? Like, what really was that? What really was I thinking about? Because it wasn't about the food. It, it, and it wasn't about, you know, the exercise. What really was I stressed out about? And I allowed myself to get curious. And it was through curiosity that I found self-compassion. Oh, and that from from that compassion, I was able to allow myself permission to make mistakes, to learn my lessons after I made the mistakes, to then assess how we could how I could do it better, um, how I could not make that mistake in the future to assess what was the initial trigger instead of constantly blaming myself for the effect. And then once once I started going through that process, that's how I started to so quickly heal Fast forward a few years later, I had started my business, um, my coaching business, and I was, it, was, it had been about a year and a half. Prior to that, I would, had been in an e-commerce company where I had gone through a very emotionally taxing buyout where every fear that I'd always had, because I'd always been very audacious with my career, um, but suddenly all those fears that I used to have about my body and that I used to have about relationships, all those fears about being too much, being, you know, a challenger, mm -hmm. being um, not enough, be like being too girly, too feminine, too sparkly, too much, too, uh, you know, too uneducated, too, too, you know, learning from, you know, doing rather than from books and degrees. All of those fears were brought to light within the span of three months right before my wedding by professional lawyer men. Oh. <laughs> and, and so all of my insecurities were slapped in my face. And I'm very grateful for that experience now because it taught me so much. But back then it crushed me. Oh. And it was it took a year, about a year and a half of me because then I flew off on my honeymoon. We signed the bio agreement three weeks before I got married. Um, we signed the buyout agreement and I flew off on my honeymoon, was in Italy. My husband and I were like brainstorming like you do on your honeymoon, especially when it's six weeks. Um, I'm like, what wow. do I do when I get back? Because I had no business. I like I'd spent two years building up this e-commerce company 
get literally it was right before I just pitched it to the first round of Shark Tank auditions. I had just, you know, we just were going for angel investing and crowdfunding and then like rug pulled out from under me. So a little bit of trauma right there. And I was on my honeymoon and I had way too many espressos and I was brainstorming (laughs) about everything that I loved. I loved fitness, but I didn't love teaching Pilates full time. I loved health. I loved the integration of the body. I loved the integration of relationships. I loved business and entrepreneurship. And we pulled it, pulled it all together. And I leaped off the couch and I said, crown yourself. And my husband's like, what's that? And I said, that's the name of my company. And he's like, what do you do? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) But let's buy the domain name and let's, you know, blow all my buyout money (laughs) on on everything that I didn't need um, because I didn't have a product to sell for a year and a half. And (laughs) and so for a year and a half, I found myself going down the same spiral with both business and money as I did with my body. The blame, shame, victim triangle, the um the blame of blaming my former business partner, the fear, the blaming myself, feeling the shame, feeling like I had to come and swoop in and save the day on our finances and whatnot. And by taking another job that was like way less than what I I had initially started with when I first started teaching Pilates. And I, I, after a year and a half, then I found out I was pregnant and I was like, I know this is a mindset piece. I know this is very similar to my own recovery from bulimia. I know that I can do this. I now also know that I don't have two and a half years to figure this out. I have a nine month deadline. Um, (laughs) And so I immediately got certified in NLP, timeline therapy and hypnosis. I got a coach to support me through the process. And that was where my transformation really happened because I started to look at all the correlations as to how I recovered from bulimia and put them to my own business and financial bulimia that I was currently in of like binging and purging. Financial bulimia. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, oh, you get all this money in and then (laughs) there it goes out the door and then some. Um, And so that was an experience of being able to see how these patterns are circular in our lives. And the success strategies that we build to pull us out of one area of struggle can be the same success strategy that we apply to another area of our life if we're just brave and bold enough to do it. Yeah. What, what about for those people who don't feel brave and bold, who aren't Enneagram eights, who aren't challengers? Um, what, what would be a, a first, a small first step that they could take to start to reclaim their own life? Get curious. Mm. I I feel like curiosity is the superpower of love facing the future. Yes. It's it's occupying the space of love. It's instead of thinking I've got to, it's how might I, and what if, and, and how could, how could this happen? How can I create this? Um, And love, as we know, most powerful non-physical force in the universe I try to lead with curiosity and I try to teach people curiosity, but having it innately, I mean, obviously that's the, we're all curious. We were all five years old at one point. Mm-hmm. We can tap into that inner five-year-old and, and say, okay, what would that inner five-year-old do? The inner yeah. five-year-old who was not discouraged from being curious. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I want to touch on something real quick that just came to mind. It sounds like, during all of your healing process that you 
that you kind of forgave all the past versions of yourself. Oh, yeah. You forgave the one who enabled the alcoholism. You forgave the the one who was bulimic, the you that was who was bulimic. And um, do you think that played a part in your healing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think being able to look at our past identities as what they are. Like, that's why I had a bit of a disagreement with the eating disorder community, because there's this term of being in recovery. And I think that at a certain point, you're no longer in recovery, you're transformed. And a butterfly is never going back to being a caterpillar. And the same is true with in business. Like you may be in financial recovery for a while. And then at some point you're transformed. And there's there's literally no going back to that old version of who you were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think unless that- you make the choice to do that, because <laughs> 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 it always can come down to our choice. But there it's because it's such a foreign identity. Like I look back on all the past identities of who I've been and all the past iterations. And I just, so often I just want to give those those poor girls a hug. Yes. Like I just want to I, I just want to love on them. Yes. I want I want to guide them. I want to just let them know it's going to be OK. Like it's it is all good. And that that it it is that sense of certainty and inner peace that comes from the resiliency of facing challenges. And I think that we have gotten as a society to go back to blame and apathy, very, very misconstrued with thinking that safety means apathy and everything should be okay and just fine. And we should never face any challenge or have any resistance whatsoever. (laughs) No. And that's not life. (laughs) We are we are on this earth school for a reason to learn lessons and we cannot learn lessons without challenges, without friction and iron sharpens iron. And it is literally scientific principles that you need friction in order to grow. So the ability of. the, The desire to put people into this bubble of safety is an illusion. Yeah. And the more we chase after that, the the less resilient we actually become in the process. How do you know if you're inside a bubble? You got to you got to test the walls to see if it pops. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Enneagram 8 answer. <laughs> yeah. How but I mean somebody who's like, well, I'm I'm kind of okay with my life and my job's okay and you know, my partner's okay, but am I in a bubble? How would they know? What would fantastic feel like? How good can you actually stand it? Like, if everything's okay, that can be a space of complacency. It's one of our human desires is to grow. Mm-hmm. And it's from that space of like, comfort is one of the hardest places to grow from. I mean, like pain, once you get to a certain level of pain, like you're like, I'm growing or like, this is done. <laughs> But like, so there's no choice, mm-hmm. but comfort is one of the hardest places to grow from. So when everything yeah. is that F word, fine, fine, it's fine. fine. Everything's it's fine. fine. Okay. Mediocre. There's, that is when we have, it, it is up to us to tap into our deep, innate consciousness that that creator that expansive being that lives within each of us that is say, okay we've, we've got the basics of maslow's hierarchy figured yeah. out uh-huh. 
and it's time to grow up, grow into greater consciousness. And mm-hmm. so what will allow me to grow and expand into my highest potential rather than just settling in this place of fine? Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes I ask people if if you if things are fine now. And what if they don't change in five years? What if they're exactly the same as they are in five years or in 10 years? Would you be still living a satisfied life? Mm-hmm. And that's a good like internal check, like, oh, oh, no, I, I don't want to have the same thing. I want more than that. OK, and then we can lean on our curiosity, our inner five year old and say, OK, what what might a better future or more satisfying or more fulfilling future feel like? And then yeah. once you get to into, all right, I wanted to feel I want to feel more satisfied. I want to feel more. Fulfilled. OK, and. And who would you need to become to feel those? Who would you need to become to be that person who lives in that way and who is that way? Because it always comes back to identity. Yeah. It's that it, it's that mirror of, of looking yourself in the mirror, looking really close, warts, pimples, gray hair <laughs> at all, and saying, yep, this is me. Uh, I didn't color my hair, speaking of gray hair, I didn't color my hair for almost 20 years. Actually, probably about 20 years. And I realized one day I am, as I'm coloring my hair and as my roots are getting whiter and whiter, I am telling the world that I dislike this part of myself. And I thought, is that objectively true? I thought, no, I really don't give a shit what anybody else thinks about my hair. (laughs) I've been married to the same man for forever. This month, it'll be 28 years. And he doesn't care if my hair is white. I kind of kind of like having white hair so young. Why? Why am I coloring it? Society says you shouldn't have gray hair until you're quote unquote old. Screw that noise. I'm going to have gray hair and be and be 39 years old. Who cares? Yep. And embracing that part of myself, looking in that mirror and going, yep, this is me. Gray hair, wrinkles, freckles, everything. Wounds, heels, scars, all of it. It's all me. And I think that 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 comes down to like looking at and examining. I did a podcast on examining my self-care rituals because I love I love the big nails. I love the eyelashes. And for I took out my self like these these rituals that I have for I think it was a quarter, and because I it was like what do I who am I without my my big nails and my big eyelashes and and I explored that and I said you know I love I love me for who I am and I embrace it it, it allowed me to look at oh I'm actually toning myself down to be what society wants of like not loud not not out with it like (laughs) that actually is me conforming rather than me choosing to stand out in my own way and I so being able to examine that like I I did a TikTok video just this past weekend because I was traveling in Raleigh and my I, I looked around and I was like everyone's in like Crocs and Birkenstocks and there I am in my six inch like um hot pink stilettos and I'm like (laughs) Why does nobody else wear hot pink stilettos to travel? I personally, I was a ballerina dancer, so I I have high arches and I feel more comfortable in heels than I do in Crocs. Like my feet would be dying. Um, and so like I'm that weirdo, but I own my weird. 
And it took me a while because for a while I did coddle and cater and try to contort myself into this mold of like, oh, well, this is normal. Mm-hmm. And like you wearing uh, this sort of sexy outfit or this thing, like that's, that's, that's not that's not a good what a good girl would wear. That's oh, yeah. something that you should be ashamed of or your curves. And now I'm like, I have birthed two beautiful humans through this body. I have literally been a spiritual portal <laughs> into the physical realm. <laughs> I don't care what you say about what I wear. Do not. Do That's not. Awesome. And if it's too much for you, then great. That that just means our our personalities, our audiences, we're just online. That's fine. I don't need any everybody to like me. And I have embraced that side. And that is the, the part of the challenger that I had to come to love, that I had to love myself enough to also say, like, I will never make everyone happy. And so if people are going to judge me regardless, I might as well be judged for being 1000% who I am. Yes. Rather than being some contorted version that I don't even like. Like I'm a, I I should like myself if I'm going to be judged for being myself rather than like liking the person not liking the person who I am but who I am is not really me. Yes. Oh my god. That's double the judgment. You're judging yourself and you're having other people judge. Yep. I have found that people who judge other people the loudest are the ones who judge themselves the harshest. Oh yeah. And I I just feel so much compassion for those people and I think, "Oh honey, oh honey, it's okay. It's okay. I just, I want to just like give them some love and, and tell them it'll be okay. Um, yeah. a gal that I used to, uh, I was a, a part of the, uh, a community with her, um, was very much into fitness, very, very, very fit. Her makeup was always just so, and her hair was always just so. And we went, we went to a conference together And I got to see her without makeup and I thought, oh my gosh, she's so pretty without makeup as well. And I told her, I said, you look fantastic. And she goes, oh, oh, no, no, no. Mm. And um, during the conference, I I just noticed how, how harshly she was judging herself. And I kind of put those two things together that, you know, I was talking to some other people later on and I thought, wow, people who judge other people really do judge themselves harshly. So so I would invite the listeners to when you find yourself judging other people, is it because that you dislike that part of yourself that maybe you should put down that stick and stop beating yourself up with that and maybe yeah. be direct kindness and love to yourself and that other person? Yeah. And if that judgment is coming out of jealousy, that's also another great space to see, like, where am I denying myself what I actually want? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I recently had a a TikTok, my first TikTok hater. My, my whole queen team celebrated it because we were like, we are the first hater. <laughs> because <laughs> you got to have the haters first. Yep. From time to time to yep. to then, you know, it's, 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 it's for me, that's a sign of progress. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the comment was, you know, we just started doing TikTok about a month ago. And, oh, you're giving, you're giving business tips and you have like less than two, 200, you know, people following you. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I've I've been an entrepreneur for the past 10 years. I've had three businesses from a brick and mortar Pilates studio to an e-commerce startup to this, but I don't need to explain myself to you because quite frankly, I'm out there creating and I looked at this profile and, and I saw they hadn't created one video. Oh, this was somebody who was actively um, 
projecting onto you what they felt about yeah. themselves. Yeah. And I said, look, I'm uh, my challenger came out and said, I challenge you. I dare you to create one video, create one, create something instead of tearing someone down. Who's, who's doing creation. Like I'm secure enough in myself to where I'm like, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Bye. Um, but I want to encourage those who who feel that initial judgment of like, oh, look, you know, this person did this thing on Facebook or this person. Like, are you are you actually judging? Because that's something that you'd just like to try. Like, maybe that's something that you'd like to, that you think would actually be fun. And by your judgment, you're not allowing yourself the pleasure of creating. Yeah. Of experimenting even. Yeah. Because you never playing know with it. Yeah. Experimenting, playing is so valuable. And we can, again, we're going back to our inner five-year-old. What could we learn from that previous version of ourself who was unencumbered by other people's negative opinions and other people's um, limitations? Somebody yeah. else's call dumped it the garbage. programming. <laughs> yeah. It's somebody else's garbage that somebody else has dumped that you've picked up and decided this garbage is mine. So I'm just going to smear it all over me. Ew, get rid of those layers. Identify them. Yeah. Um, and it takes looking in a mirror in inside your own self, inside your own soul, and recognizing, wait, that's somebody else's garbage. That little tiny speck right there, that's somebody else's garbage. And then celebrate the shit out of that progress that you just made. Even if it's the tiniest speck, it's worth celebrating. Yeah. Like you said, uh, crown yourself. I just get the sense that that is so you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. And that the the crown, whole concept of crown yourself is like, from a business standpoint, is this hierarchical structure of how organizations like to go on a macro level, it's no longer really working. And when we can embrace our own personal responsibility, servant leadership, not dictatorship. Yes. <laughs> currently what I'm working on with my four-year-old. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, a four-year-old is all about becoming, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's 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 fun and challenging in the process mm -hmm. to be able to see that that discovery of of learning and becoming and testing out like, oh, I wonder if this strategy works and I wonder if mm -hmm. this works and let me try this and let me try this thing that I saw on this TV show. And I'm like, no, don't try that. Like, I'd prefer that you not, but yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll I give that a go. At four years old, both my kids stopped being just what, what was being put into them mm -hmm. and new stuff started to come out and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? Where did that come from? And yep. it's, and it's the, their, their own personalities, their own selves emerging. I love four and seven, uh, both yeah. my kids at that age. Cause they, they, they were just new things coming out. And it, it's so fun to see. And, and as, uh, my son's teacher said, he, she said he has leadership capability. I said, yes, we are working on him being a conscious leader and not a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> because his presence is commanding, but that the ability to recognize, I think, especially for parents, recognizing your child's innate gifts, and then also being able to recognize what were those innate gifts that you had at four five, six years old that, that weren't really recognized or appreciated. Like for me, when I was four five, six years old, I was corralling the neighborhood kids into my 
creative productions where and, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors where we would be setting up like booths on the sidewalk to sell bags of glitter water or which is, you know, it is what it is. It is a bag of, of water with glitter in it um, that I thought would be incredibly refreshing if dumped and sparkly on a on a day. I didn't realize I was split testing price points as well. We did. We, I sold them for five cents or fifty dollars. <laughs> I mean, you can guess which one sold. <laughs> Um, but we would I, like and then I would corral the neighborhood kids into big productions and and into these backyard productions that just were which is great because in a highly monetizable strategy. Now, now as a parent where I'm like putting on a stage production for children, especially like my son was just in a dance production. I was like, that is a very solid business model because <laughs> no parent is not going to pay to for for the dance classes, for the recital, for the costumes, for the tickets, and for all of their friends to come and see. <laughs> like, is, that is a solid business model right there. Oh my and God. so, I, but that's what I would do when I was four, five, six years old. I was creating these productions, and that's what I've done with my company. That's what I'm doing with the the startup that I'm creating. Like bringing people together, leading that production, co-authoring it. As a collaborative effort, um, I was a bit more of a dictator back then, I will admit. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> we learn from our past, do we not? And we learn and grow. But embracing those parts of, of you and who you were, because before society, before your family put those plagiarized, their plagiarized programming on you of, of who you should be, how you should tone it down and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've been told, you're too much. No, you, me too. You're too emotional. Or or actually, I <laughs> I had a boss who told me almost weekly, stop caring so much. <sighs> I can't not care. I can't yeah. care. I can't care less than I'm caring now because I feel like I've already toned it down as much as I can and still work here. Yikes, that, that kind of apathy is not me. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. Thank you, Robert Fulgham. The whole idea of, you know, and my mentor has the same saying, if, if it's not, a, if it's not a fuck yeah, it's a no. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many things that we feel like, oh, I got to do this because so-and-so expects it or because of this. When, is it really just a no? Yeah. What would happen if we said No. What would we, what would happen if we actually embraced and explored the apathy into maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Yeah. When we acquiesce to apathy, that's, I mean, I think that's where our society is right now in this space where it's the, and, and I, I don't blame society because it's also our biological wiring is wired for comfort. It's not really wired for growth. Yeah, we're wired for comfort and survival and our hardware, our hardware hasn't really adapted to the software upgrades. Yes. <laughs> and so that's the, and that's the process. Our software, our hardware will adapt when we consciously allow plug ourselves in for those software upgrades, like yeah. with listening to podcasts like this, like with reading books, like with mm -hmm. exposing yourself to different belief systems and yeah. exposing yourself to triggers where they, instead of projecting in, you know, your beliefs of like, I'm right, you're wrong, let's fight. <laughs> <laughs> it, to the unconscious Enneagram mates out there, mm -hmm. but to the, oh, that really, that really triggered me. I wonder what that, what I could learn from that. What is it inside me that I either 
I'm seeking validation for? What mm-hmm. boundary do I need to draw around my inner peace? What uh, what do I need to express? What do I need to explore? Yeah, leaning and in allowing with curiosity that, again, that inner curiosity rather than that outward projection of that dividing line of I'm right, you're wrong. Let me show you how wrong you are, which only builds up the defensive walls that I think we all have way too many of right now in yeah. this day and age. Yeah, definitely. The I was talking with a behavioral neurophysicist out of South Africa a couple of weeks ago. His name is Dr. JJ Kennedy. And, and he kind of validated something that I had been um, hypothesizing that our, our thoughts do create beliefs. Beliefs are thoughts on repeat and our yeah. beliefs and thoughts drive behavior, but that our behavior then changes our um, neurological wiring which then changes our thoughts and beliefs. And he said, it's, it's like the argument of the chicken and the egg, which came first. Because of our own neuroplasticity, our, our behavior can change our brains, and our brains can change our behavior. And it's, I was kind of, I was like, you know, there has to be some, some Mobius strip in here, a Mobius loop that, because I've seen evidence for both. And he said, oh, Absolutely. So when we think, well, how can, how can I change my behavior? How can I change my thoughts? Well, pick one and start because yeah. one's going to change the other, which is going to support the change of, you know, the, the continued change, the, yeah. the uh, sustainability of that change. Yeah. It's like uh, when I first started doing Pilates, I didn't know that was going to change my behavior. I just knew that that made my body feel good. And somatically, our, our gut sends more signals to our brain than our brain does to our gut. Oh, yeah. It's, and so when we're working 20, from that, yeah. and, and, you know, we're not just like a one dimensional being, we are spiritual, physical, mental, emotional beings and being able to tap into like, okay, this is the thing that I'm going to do. Like right now, for example, I'm doing 75 hard and that's challenge of doing, um, cause I love a good challenge doing, <laughs> it's doing two workouts a day, um, drinking a gallon of water, reading 10 pages a day. Um, and then no alcohol, uh, and following a diet. I don't, I don't diet. Um, but my diet is very, what I eat. I use the term diet is to mean lifestyle. What I eat is very clean. It's very green. It's very either from the, from the ground or it's grown on the ground or it's lived on the ground. That's my balance for me of what works for me and my body and out of my own exploration and curiosity of what, Mm -hmm. of what works, because you have to find what what works for you yeah. um, and testing and playing with, okay, let me try Let me try this. Let me try this belief system. Let me try this way of being and allowing for testing and er- experimentation. And I think that that's one of the things that traditional education has in, in the formative years has really taken out of children, which is a, to such the detriment of society yeah. because children are so much more when studied are more naturally curious, four and five years old, than somebody graduating college. Oh, of course. And it, instead, if we can allow for that curiosity and experimentation to come back in our life of what, like when I, um, when I work with a client, uh, just this past week, I was saying, you know, let's test this lead generation strategy. And she was like, oh, okay. And thinking like that, it's going to be a lifetime commitment. I said, <laughs> look, we're going to test this for two weeks. If you get a response, then we ramp it up. 
If you don't get a response, we pivot and change. So no longer requiring like, I'm going to adopt this habit and this is going to be for life because we are ever evolving beings. I was a vegan for six years. Eventually my body was like, no, you really need red meat. And so I allowed my body to adapt to that because that was what my body was saying in being in this constant dialogue of what, what is my body? What is my soul? Do, what do my emotions need? What does my business need? What do my finances need from me to be in that relational dialogue of curiosity rather than saying, oh, this is how it should be. Nobody in any relationship likes that. <laughs> like yeah. if you were to put personify that into a human relationship, nobody likes being told what they should do and why that's that they need to do it. And that that's just the way that they should be, especially not us Enneagram mates. Um, and definitely not um, in perpetuity. And not in perpetuity of like, this is how it's going to be forever. And like, rather than let's try this, let's see how this works. Let's see how this goes. If we like this, then it keeps on feeling good, then great. That's and if it doesn't, then then we'll explore how to make it work or how to pivot or how to shift or what needs to change. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that comes down to two things of ways of being. And in one is being committed, being committed to the vision of what it is that you want to create, not necessarily to the how it's created. Exactly. And be, two is being in integrity with yourself of being able to say say your fuck yeses and your hell yeah. no's and really being able to listen as to like what's my gut whispering yeah and what's my head versus what what's the story that my head is spinning because our head will tell us this like spinning story of like oh that really was a no that really was a no and meanwhile your gut's going yeah kind of whisper that it was a fuck yes but you know you're yeah. trying to reason yourself out of that so okay yeah, we have millions of brain cells, neuro cells in our gut. We have the same number as a cat has in its brain. <gasps> Hello, kitty. The um, we have about forty thousand neuro cells in our heart, so mm -hmm. our bodies have much more wisdom and intuition than we give them credit for. And when we're operating in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, and uh, we're you know triggered, the front part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, is offline. We we don't have access to it. But when it, once it is online and we have access to it, it's not the only source of intuition and information available to us. And so often we think, oh, well, that's just, oh, that's just a gut feeling. And, oh, that's just, that's not real. That's not whatever. And, you know, we slow down enough, engage our, our inner four and five-year-old, be curious about it, and all kinds of good things might come. This sounds like you know exactly who you can really help and you have a very specific ideal client. Who who are those people? I love working with the multi-passionate, creative, visionary founders of companies. Um, they are the ones who want to lead movements. They value impact over income, though they do like making income as well. And they think they struggle a lot with productivity, but that's just because they've been taught and programmed not to be that they can't be too scattered and have too many things on their plates when that's really a part of how their creativity thrives. And through looking at that and through being able to learn how to delegate and offshoot those things that are not in your zone of genius, that's what I work with my clients on of looking at what really is their zone of genius. How do we look at the, how do we systematize your zone of genius so that you get to spend the most amount of time in your zone of genius, which I have seen a direct correlation with every business owner for the past five years 
that the more time that they spend in their zone of genius, the more income that they make, the more time their team spends in their zone of genius, the more income the company makes. So being able to delegate, create those productivity systems, create the structure that builds that freedom that gets them to the destination where they want to go. Those, those are my people. Oh, awesome. And how would those people find you? Head on over to crownyourself.com and just click the button that says work with me. And I would love to have a conversation. If this is a conversation that you have loved and enjoyed, I'd love to meet you one-to-one. Now, now crown yourself sounds very female oriented. Do you cater mainly for women or men and women? 80% of my clients are women, but I do have a few Kings that I work with as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what a pleasure. What a pleasure this has been chatting with you. I love this. Same here, Cammie. You are just, I, we connected on lunch club and it's, it was so awesome to meet you and, and your energy is so beautiful. I just love being around it. It's, and the way you think is, is awesome. I, I, I love the connections that your brain makes. Thank you. Thank you. For more good juju, visit Cami.coach, C-A-M-I dot coach. 